New York City's landscape is forever changing. Buildings come down, new ones go up, theaters close and are transformed into things like restaurants and even pharmacies. That's where Landmarks officials and historic preservationists come in. They're on the front lines in the fight to make sure the city's history and cultural heritage aren't obliterated in the name of progress. Good morning. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, we're turning our attention to historic preservation and landmark issues. In the studio with us is Andrew Berman. Andrew is the executive director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning. Also with us is Margaret Castillo. She's the president-elect of the New York chapter of the American Institute of Architects. Hi, Margaret. Hi, George. How are you? Good. And on the phone with us is Mark Silberman. Mark is the general counsel of New York City's Landmarks Preservation Commission. Mark, thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. Let's start with you, Mark. What role does the Landmarks Preservation Commission play here in New York City? The commission, uh, which was uh, created in 1965, is is the city agency that's responsible for um, designating individual landmarks, uh, identifying architectural, historical, and cultural resources that are significant enough to the history of the city. And, And we were created to consider those, to designate them, and once they were designated, to regulate them to ensure that they continue to have the qualities that uh, we designated them for. You don't just only deal with buildings in terms of the outside. You also can landmark simply interiors as well, right? Yes, we have the power to designate interiors, but those interiors but um, have to be uh, open and accessible to the public. So bank interiors, theaters, lobbies, those are the kinds of things that the commission, interiors that the commission has designated. There's very few of them, approximately 110 out of the 26,000 structures the commission has designated since 1965. I understand, Mark, that the Landmarks Preservation Commission's budget is among the smallest budgets of any city agency. Does that make your work particularly challenging? Well, compared to the Department of Buildings and other, you know, big agencies, we have a, a small budget. You know, we are constantly trying to be as efficient as we can with those resources. I would point out that even though compared to other city agencies, we have a small budget, the Landmarks Commission in New York City is, by orders of magnitude, the largest preservation commission in the country. Currently, we have about 65 people on staff. You know, many other city agencies like Chicago or Philadelphia or D.C., which they have, you know, 10, 15 people. So, so while we are, it is small, there's always a sense that, that uh, with more people you could do more things. We are fortunate that the city of New York has actually supports preservation in a big way. I want to get more into the nitty-gritty of the landmark designation process here in the city, but first let's bring Andrew Berman into the, into the conversation. Now, the name of your organization speaks for itself, the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, but tell us the history behind the organization. Sure. We've been around since uh, 1980, and we work in the neighborhoods of Greenwich Village, NoHo, and the East Village, which are some of the most historic neighborhoods in New York City to work to try to preserve the special architectural and cultural character of those neighborhoods to preserve and educate about them. We also advocate on a city and statewide level for sound planning and preservation policies. Uh, So we're often involved in uh, preservation issues that uh, extend outside the boundaries of our neighborhood. And among the ways in which we do that is we often uh, propose to and advocate in front of the Landmarks Preservation Commission for designation of certain properties. As Mark mentioned, the commission also then regulates those properties 
once they're designated either individual landmarks or historic districts. Uh, Greenwich Village is uh, one of the oldest and the largest historic district in uh, New York City, and we often advocate for what we believe is the uh, appropriate uh, regulation of those uh, properties. And we also, uh, in relation to what was mentioned before, often with our fellow preservation groups, advocate for um, supplemental funding um, for the Landmarks Preservation Commission so that they can uh, do their job, and that's uh, always an ongoing struggle. Is there a particular charge that you're leading right now? We're always fighting a a war on many fronts um, because there is such enormous development pressure in the city, which has been, uh, um, you know, encouraged in recent years a a great deal. Um, One of our main efforts right now is to try to get uh, landmark designation for an area called the South Village, which is the part of Greenwich Village that was not landmarked in the 1960s. It's uh, the largely working class immigrant, uh, historically Italian and American section of Greenwich Village, south of Washington Square Park, around Bleecker Street, McDougal Street, Carmine Street, uh, areas that people think of as, in many ways, the heart of the historic village, but which have been lacking landmark protections, and the historic character of the neighborhood has uh, suffered in recent years as a result. You mentioned, of course, development pressures, but have they slowed at all with the economic downturn? In our neighborhood, less than you would think, partly because we have a lot of large institutions in our neighborhood, um, in addition to a lot of uh, private real estate development pressure, um, and those have not necessarily disappeared. NYU, the largest private university in the country, is located in our midst, and they're actually about to release an enormously ambitious 20-year development plan where they intend to add something like 3 million square feet of space in our neighborhood neighborhood, which is the equivalent of adding uh, several more average-sized colleges to the neighborhood. We have St. Vincent's uh, Hospital, uh, which has or had a development plan that involves uh, partnering with a big real estate developer. So in spite of the downturn, um, we actually still face a lot of pressure and a lot of threats. Let me bring Margaret Castillo into the conversation again. She is the president-elect of the New York chapter of the American Institute of Architects. Margaret, how does the AIA figure into historic preservation in New York City? The AIA is made of over uh, almost uh, 5,000 members, uh, our architects. We advocate good design, and quite often an architect will come with a project and ask the AIA um, for their review of it. And on occasion, we have testified in front of the Landmarks Preservation Commission as to what Andrew was talking about, the appropriateness um, of it. We also have many programs at the Center for Architecture on LaGuardia Place. And right now, we have one called Context Contrast, where we've highlighted in the five boroughs different historic districts and the whole issue of having a new building in a historic neighborhood is a very interesting subject, and how do you determine appropriateness? So we enjoy the dialogue in bringing designers and the community, um, such as Andrews, uh, into the discussion um, because we think design matters. Let me throw that question to you, Mark. How do you determine appropriateness in a historic district? The, the Landmarks Law sort of sets forth various criteria for what you look at and the kind of things you'd expect, color, massing, material, and you look at all those things. But what the Landmarks Commission, the uh, Landmarks Law doesn't do is, is prescribe what, what would be an appropriate new building or new addition. And it very much leaves it up to the, the 11 commissioners that make up the Landmarks Commission to look at it and say, in this case, this, this fits in. And it needs to relate to the, 
the, the buildings around it. And sometimes that can happen in a very modern way and, and sometimes in a very conservative way. And I think that I'm sure Andrew would agree. There's sometimes people applaud what the commission has proven. Other times they, they may scratch their heads and say, huh. Andrew, do you agree? Yeah, I'd say that's an that's an apt description. And, you know, without a doubt, there's a, a level of subjectivity here. And I don't think it's possible for there ever to be universal agreement about um, <clears throat> what is appropriate. And I think even over time, that thinking um, changes. And I think that, you know, each of us in our, uh, our roles um, obviously have uh, opinions about this and, and uh, weigh in on the process. Sometimes there is agreement. Sometimes there's a, a great deal of disagreement. And, uh, you know, uh, a lot of these um, uh, part of what the sort of arguments are based around have to do with issues of, of precedence. Um, you know, if you allow or approve this, what might it lead to in other cases? Um, in addition to, to what Mark mentioned about, you know, color and materials, there's also issue of scale. That's often very a, a big issue in historic neighborhoods, which are typically among the lower scaled sections of the city. Um, developers are often looking to build as big as possible and to try to create the best argument for why their, you know, sort of big new structure somehow is appropriate for that neighborhood. So it's one of the many sort of fault lines around which these arguments take place. But no one is saying that once you have a historic district that that neighborhood should be frozen in time. Absolutely no, not. Yeah, sure. absolutely. And I think what's important to sort of underscore is that the diversity of responses and answers to what's appropriate adds to the sort of vitality of these districts. I mean, if, if every new building in every district looked the same, it would have a real deadening experience. And that helps historic districts remain vital, uh, energetic, and contributing, you know, parts of the city. Andrew, give me an example of a battle that you lost in a historic district. One case where there was disagreement between us and the commission, and obviously the commission ultimately uh, wins, is uh, at the corner of uh, 13th Street and Greenwich Avenue at the edge of the Greenwich Village Historic District. It's uh, an 11 or 12-story undulating glass-walled apartment tower. You know, we uh, absolutely do not take the position that all new architecture in historic districts has to um, mimic historic styles. There certainly are modern ways of interpreting it. In this case, however, we felt that the uh, the materials and the really the lack of any connection to the character of the surrounding neighborhood really didn't fit in. You know, many people argued, well, it's it's a great building, but we felt strongly that it's the issue is not just what do you think of the building, but what do you think of the building and how it relates to the character of the neighborhood that it's in. And the purpose of historic district de- designation is to maintain and perpetuate that. Margaret, I know that you you have personally restored a number of 19th century properties here in New York City, many for new uses. Tell us about those efforts. Well, uh, yes, we have, uh, particularly finishing up one at Columbia University and even working on Low Library. Um, and uh, I think what's wonderful about historic buildings is the material, the um, uh, the scale of the buildings quite often, and those are the things we want to preserve. Uh, sometimes you do have to put new uses in them, like an elevator or a ramp, and it's really finding the vocabulary and, and perhaps separating what the new insertion is so that people can see the old, but it, it's always a, a tricky balance to, to do that. Even replacing windows can be a big deal. I guess Nora Jones in Brooklyn experienced some trouble of her own when she changed the windows on her historic home. Right. Well, well actually, that, that was a little bit different. That wasn't changing the windows. That was actually adding new windows okay. to the side, to a sort of undeveloped side facade of her of her building. So a little bit different. But, yes, mm-hmm. the issue about regulation, the Landmarks Commission is, you know, 
responsible for for doing all for everything from from you know a new door to um, an addition. We we regulate all of those things and, and need to find them to be appropriate um, or to have no effect on the architecture of the buildings. Right. And sometimes in historic districts, even um, there are cases where the question of allowing the demolition of a building comes up, the construction of a new building. Um, so even those are possibilities within historic districts, and we would all agree that there are circumstances in which that is appropriate. Sometimes the um, the particulars about when, where, and how, there isn't always agreement on that, and that, that's another area where I think there's some very um, um, dynamic conversations that take place. We're talking about landmark issues on this morning cityscape. More of our discussion in just a moment. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM. It's WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're talking about historic preservation and landmark issues. In studio with us is Margaret Castillo. She is the president-elect of the New York chapter of the American Institute of Architects. Also with us in studio is Andrew Berman. He's the executive director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. And on the phone with us is Mark Silberman. He is the general counsel of New York City's Landmarks Preservation Commission. Mark, how does it all begin? How does the process start in the first place when a building, someone comes to you and says, you know what, this building, this area should be landmarked or designated a historic district? Um, it happens a couple different ways. It happens in that way you just described, where somebody, you know, brings to our attention uh, a building or an area of the city and, and they send us a letter or some pictures and they say, you should consider this. We also have a survey department. Uh, we have a research department at, at the Landmarks Commission, and within that department are survey, surveyors who go out proactively looking at various parts of the city. Um, but no matter how, how it comes to us, we, the process is, is similar. We, have, we look at it, we do some research. The expert research staff of the commission sort of looks at the resource, decides basic qualities, like is it at least 30 years old? And in addition, there has to be a certain level of intactness to the, to the building. And the research staff looks at that and makes a sort of a baseline determination. Is it, does it meet the bit minimum standards? And um, if it doesn't, then it's pushed to the side. Eventually, a, there's a, a committee that includes the chair that looks at these things. And if it's determined that, that it's worthy of consideration, a packet of information is given to the commissioners. They look at it. We get feedback from them. And ultimately, in terms of what goes comes forward to the commission for consideration of public hearings, the chair of the Landmarks Commission, Chair Tierney, looks at it and sort of brings things forward. So, for example, Chair Tierney made a big priority of doing districts and designations in the outer boroughs, which for many, many years there was a lot of criticism of the Landmarks Commission that we were very manhattan centric and people kept on saying, what about the other boroughs? And so Chair Tierney has made it a big priority to do districts outside of Manhattan. What was it? Sunnyside, Queens, right? That was recently designated? Sunnyside, Queens, big big district in Crown Heights. We did the Fieldston district, uh, the Bronx, Prospect Heights again in Brooklyn. And ultimately, we'll go to the commission and the commission will hold a public hearing. Everyone testifies, owners will testify, and ultimately the commission will consider all of that and uh, make a decision about whether to designate it. That sounds like a lot. How long does the process actually take? It can be as quick as uh, 10 days under the law, 
Uh, that doesn't happen very often. It, it really depends. It can take, you know, um, some months for an individual landmark. And in a big district, it can take much, much longer because with a district, the commission not only is out walking and determining boundaries, but it also is doing research and descriptions, physical descriptions of every building. So with districts, they can take, um, you know, it can take many, many months, if not, if not more. Let me ask you, Andrew, is it fast enough? Well, uh, I was going to say that the, the issue of timing, I think, is one of the, the, the key questions here and one of the ones around which there's often the most tension. You know, landmark designation uh, often comes up in the context of a threat. Um, and so oftentimes there is, in fact, a sense of urgency. And in addition to the timing that Mark referred to, there's also often an, an enormous amount of lead time getting you to the place where the Landmarks Commission is even officially looking at it, uh, sometimes years. And sometimes during that time period, a lot of important pieces of a neighborhood's historic fabric can be lost. Look, there's clearly realities involved here where, uh, you know, whether it's by law or by matter of resources, the commission certainly cannot do things overnight. Uh, as well are often instances where communities are calling upon the commission to act within a time frame that would ensure that whether it's an individual building or pieces of a neighborhood are preserved. And sometimes that doesn't happen. And, and that's one of the areas in which uh, there is often the tension or the disagreement. Yeah, sure. Mark, I know you must be aware of the criticism that the Landmarks Preservation Commission isn't always as responsive as a community would like. How do you answer that criticism? The commission is very responsive to communities. And I think that part of the issue is for every community, their their community or their landmark in their building is the most important thing. They're not really that concerned about the fact the commission is maybe doing some great work somewhere else. They're worried about their, you know, you can imagine, they're worried about their own community. And so I think from that perspective, the, you know, the process doesn't go as fast as they would like. I'll never forget, I was at a historic districts council conference maybe 10 years ago, and there was a discussion. And Andrew, this, you may have been there, and somebody was talking about doing more designations in Manhattan or the village. And someone stood up and said, I'm from Staten Island, and I think there's, this, you know, there's plenty of districts and designations in Manhattan, and there's not enough in Staten Island. You know, and then the group started sort of uncomfortably, not arguing, but sort of discussing it. But I think it, it sort of underscores the sort of personal nature of what what we're do, what's involved in historic preservation everyone feels very very passionate about their part of this great city, and they want to see it preserved. Hmm. Well, without a doubt, I think that the neighborhood groups are generally on the front line of, of uh, identifying threats and pushing for preservation of their neighborhoods. The criticism about the commission not always moving as quickly as it should hasn't just come from neighborhood groups, but from citywide groups as well, that it do, in fact, have that um, broader perspective. You know, by law, the commission is charged with preserving the um, historic and cultural heritage of the city. And if the commission is not in a position to be able to move quickly enough to do that, then obviously something's wrong. Without a doubt, there are the realities that we live in tough economic times right now, and so probably every agency of the city doesn't necessarily have the resources to do everything that it could. So, you know, I think this is a question that will uh, uh, continue to be debated. Margaret, would the AIA step in and try to add some pressure if it sees that the process is moving too slow? I must say, I think I get more emails from Andrew. And in terms of outreach and advocacy, I don't think there's a neighborhood that has a stronger and a uh, more vocal spokesman. And so he does contact us and say, you know, will you sign a letter in support of, say, Far West Village? I remember that. Um, and what we'll do is bring 
um, a slideshow. Andrew came and, and spoke at the center to show why, because architects want to see you know, what the value is um, of the buildings. And that was very good. And, you know, we encourage them to write also. Um, people are very passionate about their neighborhoods. And we, uh, in conjunction with this context contrast, we had a panel, uh, Sherida Paulson, the former commissioner and, and former president of the AIA, brought in all the neighborhoods and to hear them talk about their issues, um, you know, more single family houses, landscape, uh, you can just see the passion, you know, throughout. And uh, when issues come up, they do ask for our help if we would write a letter and support. And we quite often do. Mark, the commission, though, doesn't have the final say in these cases, right? The city council does. Yeah. The, the landmarks law in New York City puts a lot of power into the commission in, in the sense that designation is effective upon the commission's vote. And there's no requirement that the city council, in fact, ratify the decision by the commission. That said, the process does require that um, a designation first go to the city planning commission. So the city planning commission uh, can look at what the impact of designation will have on its sort of plans and visions for that part of the city. And then ultimately does go to the council, which has the power to rescind or modify the um, designation. So Andrew, then you're not only lobbying landmarks, you're also lobbying lawmakers, I would imagine. Sure, in a variety of ways. Uh, certainly you want to make sure that the, that the council, if it's a designation that you support, doesn't do anything to, uh, uh, to overturn it. You know, and that's part of the checks and balances uh, system. Uh, unfortunately, the council doesn't really have the power to um, initiate or make landmark designations happen. They only have the power uh, to overturn them. Fortunately, it's a power that they've only exercised in a, in a few rare cases. Sometimes it's because they think that uh, uh, um, uh, a site that the commission has designated isn't worthy. Uh, in one case, a uh, high-profile case a few years ago, it's because they thought the commission really didn't go far enough and was ignoring um, part of a site that should have been designated, and so they overturned it basically to say, go back to the drawing board, and we urge you to look at the whole thing. It's definitely a, a dynamic process, and you got to keep your eye on the ball in a lot of different places. You definitely have to get the word out, whether it's to get people involved in the process, to win support, to light a fire under the agencies or the elected officials to get them to pay attention. You're competing with a lot of different voices. Uh, you're competing with real estate interests that have a lot of power and a lot of influence. So really, uh, typically, the best weapon that you have is good publicity and broad popular support, and that's usually essential uh, to getting anywhere with these. Mark, we mentioned earlier about the economic situation that the city is now in, and I would imagine for a lot of building owners, that means they don't have the money to put into their properties. What power do you have to go after negligent owners of landmark properties? The commission currently has a lot of power. Um, that wasn't always the case. The law was, was amended, and we now have quite strong powers to go after people, uh, including people who are negligently uh, negligent in the sort of maintenance of their building. We have the power to not only levy a civil fine against them, we can go into court, get an injunction to have them restore the building. If their uh, lack of maintenance results in the building having you demolished in whole or in part, the penalties under the Landmarks Law for that can be as high as the fair market value of the property. So, for example, uh, in Staten Island a few years ago, there was an individual landmark called the New Brighton Village Hall. It had uh, been designated in the 70s. It had a long and difficult history of, of attempts to redevelop it. Uh, eventually, um, nothing was happening. The commission sued. It was owned by a nonprofit um, housing development company. 
uh, and they basically said we, we can't do this project, and um, and the building had to be demolished. So we we sued them, and they basically forfeited the land, the entire value of the land to the city, as well as paying other penalties. So the commission um, is very active in demolition by neglect lawsuits. Um, at any given time, there might be investigations into 15 or 20 properties around the city, and there may be lawsuits pending or in the process of being brought against a, a handful here and there. But the commission's pretty good at reaching out to owners. Because we have these very powerful tools, most cases the um, uh, of demolition by neglect get resolved with people either selling the property or fixing it up. And, and one of the things that, that is always the case is that, you know, because real estate's so valuable in New York City, what we have found is in most, in I would say 85 to 95% of the cases, negligence, negligent maintenance of a building, they're always tied to some mis, you know, uh, sort of dysfunction. There's a, there's a uh, divorce or a state battle, or it's uh, someone with uh, mental health problems. There's a building that we're dealing with right now where the, a homeless person owns the building. It's a you know it's up in Harlem, and it's a you know a million and a half dollar you know a million and a half dollar building. We had to locate them with Social Security. We found them in a, in a shelter. Mm-hmm. So they're yeah. all, there's always a backstory to many of these things. Andrew, you're nodding your head in affirmation here. Yeah, we have a similar situation, which I know Mark is familiar with, at uh, 43 McDougal Street. And uh, it's clearly a small minority of cases. It's amazing when you see a property you know, that's almost 200 years old in a designated historic district where the monetary value could be incredible, but the owner will just willingly allow it to, to deteriorate, um, will refuse offers for purchase. Um, in the case of this building, it's one where there have been home homeless people living in it. There's been garbage accruing. There's there's rats. There's toxic mold that's going into neighboring buildings. So, you know, landmark designation doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, story's over, everything's perfect. Um, oftentimes, uh, in cases like these, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done to make sure the history is preserved. The, the community groups, resident groups, community boards, and the commission, you know, share important functions. We really do, you know, use and rely, and to a certain extent, on the eyes and ears of community members to keep us abreast. I mean, the commission has enforcement staff, but it's small, and we have an entire five boroughs to monitor, and it really is individuals and groups like Andrews and, and members of the, of the AIA who call us up and say this is a problem, and then, and then we look into it. It's very much a collaborative effort to make sure that buildings are maintained. And we think that's so important because truly uh, historic properties are irreplaceable. You'll, you can never get back a 200-year-old brick and things like that. So it really is important to look at that. And, you know, the demolition uh, to party wall situations, um, once damage has happened, it's really tragic. In some ways, I think that's the takeaway from all of this, which is that the history is irreplaceable. Um, Once it's lost, you really can't bring it back. And so you want to make sure that if it is a piece of the history or the cityscape that's worth keeping, that you do everything you can to keep it, because once it's gone, it's too late. Who are the people who care, Andrew? Who are the historic preservationists in New York City? I read an article not too long ago that your group is largely made up of 30-somethings. I'd say we have a pretty varied um, membership. And I think that, you know, historic preservationists are, and people who care about preserving the history and character of their neighborhood are everything from average Jane and Joes to, you know, people who studied this in school. It's the it's the well-to-do. It's the rent-controlled. A pretty broad cross-section of New Yorkers feel a great stake in the special character of their neighborhood. You know, New York, it's, it's not the easiest place to live. It's certainly not the cheapest place to live. People love living here because of the distinctive character 
character of the city and their neighborhoods. So I think in a lot of ways, almost every New Yorker has that, even if they wouldn't call themselves a historic preservationist. Do you think that younger generations care enough to carry on the fight? Uh, some of our most uh, passionate members are, and uh, I absolutely think that there's a young generation of people who are fighting to preserve what they care about, uh, the character and the history of New York, who will continue to carry that torch. Okay. Any closing words that you have? Uh, You know, just that this is something that I think affects our daily lives, even though it's sometimes portrayed as being somewhat esoteric. Um, But really, you know, the whether it's the the store on the corner or the, you know, the building that's just such a touchstone for um, how you see your neighborhood or how you see your city, um, they are vulnerable. And it does take quite a bit of work to make sure that the pieces of our cityscape that are worth holding on to stay there. And so we just try to do everything we can to encourage people to uh, to engage the process and get involved. Andrew Berman is the executive director of the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation. Andrew, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. I also want to thank Margaret Castillo. She is the president-elect of the New York chapter of the American Institute of Architects. Margaret, thank you. And on the phone, Mark Silverman. Mark is the general counsel of New York City's Landmarks Preservation Commission. Mark, thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boracki. My thanks to producer Skylar Srivastava. If you ever miss a cityscape or want to hear an episode again, we preserve them in the archives at WFUV.org. You can also learn how to podcast the show on our website. And while you're online, we encourage you to become a fan of Cityscape on Facebook and sign up to follow us on Twitter. Have a great weekend.